It is now my distinct honor to introduce the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, John Roberts, to administer the presidential oath to the next President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden. I Kamala Davy Harris, I solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. He is gone. Not a wet eye in the house over here at Redacted Cast. How about you? President Biden took the oath and the stage and with a few words righted the ship of state today. That's all. He didn't lead us to glorious Terra Nova or even to smooth sailing. He just got us gently back on course, which for today is enough. And I must say, inaugural sentimentalism is best enjoyed when spiced with a residual hatred for the former president. Not that I'd say that aloud on such a sweet day. But it did make it all the more moving to cry over Biden's speech and the beautiful poetry of the day when thinking how wonderful it was that the hated former president, Donald Trump, wasn't there. And as for him... The show's white whale, well, in the end, he just left. The fight was over. The Proud Boys were disavowing him. He had tried to murder his vice president. Trump had no more tricks, and he was licked. His vapid family trailed behind him as he trudged up the steps to a plan, who cares which one, and he left for his revolting pleasure palace, his swamp life, his hamburgers, his howling madness, and his gruesome retirement in the embrace of fire-eyed prosecutors and creditors who've run out of patience and are in the mood for asset seizure. On Friday, we expect to know the former president's parting pardons. Some are under wraps until Congress subpoenas them. But for now, it seems Trump didn't pardon himself or his family because pardons in those cases could be taken as admissions of guilt, which might point to state charges, or maybe they'd just be ignored. So Trump's in his gilded cage and extremely vulnerable. In any case, it's going to be an arduous road back for him, an arduous road to glitzy grandiosity, to even getting his calls returned. And Trump's not going to even make it more than a few steps down that road, because he's going to hit a wall, a big, beautiful wall. May Trump be walled out of the lives of all decent people forever. I said last week that Trumpcast will stay till this is over, and I meant it. Though briefly, I wondered if that means till the Senate trial and Trump's impeachment is over. But I don't think we have to wait that long. Trumpcast, unlike Trump himself, knows how to say goodbye. We know Biden won fairly and decisively, and we know it's time to lay our burdens down. So next week will be our last episode, a wrap-up, and today we'll talk for the last time about the big sweep. Progress and anti-progress in America, anti-racism and racism, decency and indecency, good, and if I may, evil. For this, I can think of no better guest than Dr. Ibram Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's an historian of race and racism in the U.S., and this is his second time on the show. The first time, he said something I've been mulling ever since. And now, four years later, I want to understand how he thinks about what he said then. 
I'll be back with Dr. Kendi in just a minute, but first, for old time's sake, one final batch of tweets, or what we imagined Trump would be tweeting today if Twitter hadn't finally pulled the plug. I wish I could be at the inauguration, but I will be at the tailors getting fitted for my five-star general uniform. It's going to have the biggest epaulets you've ever seen. I've always wanted to be in the military, and now I am. On inauguration day, I will be holding a rally in Florida for all of the wonderful people who stormed the Capitol. They will be arriving on the Trump train since they are all on the no-fly list. I just wish there was more time in my term so I could be impeached a third time for the impeachment trifecta. But January 20th is right around the corner. You know, I begged the military for a parade since they came into office, and now the guy who doesn't want one is getting it. Unbelievable. To my followers, on Inauguration Day, I want no violence, but make sure you use the Vanguard formation for constant movement. No violence. Make sure your communications are working and charged. No violence. Have milk at the ready for tear gas, no violence. Tactical gear and body armor is a must, no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order, so you can pick up your zip ties at the lobby of Trump International Hotel. Use discount code INSURRECTION for 10% off. Dr. Kendi, welcome back to Trumpcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. It's been since 2017 that you were on the show with my esteemed co-host, Jamel Bowie, and he asked you a question and your answer stopped me in my tracks. I was actually at the YMCA when YMCA meant something other than Trump's campaign song and uh, also when we used to get out to gyms. And I was on a some kind of treadmill or whatever, and I was listening to the show. And Jamel asked you the question that I think we'd all been wondering since Trump's election, which is, are things getting better or worse? Just We had been used to the idea of things getting getting better and that Obama was some kind of apotheosis. You know, it was we were all moving toward this great moment and things would only be up the mountain from then on. And suddenly it seemed like things were getting worse. And you gave an extraordinary answer that I have ha- borne in my mind since March of 2017 all the way till Biden's inauguration. And that is, if I can paraphrase, that they're not getting better or worse, they're getting better and worse simultaneously. Can you say something more about that? Well, I, I think in many ways, we, we, especially in recent years, have been arguing over whether things are getting better or, or worse. And, and both sides have come with extremely relevant um, evidence-based arguments about how things are worse now than they were 50 years ago, particularly for Black folks or even the American people more broadly, and how things are better. And the reason why both arguments have been effective is because they're both true. And in my work, especially as it relates to race and racism, I chronicle not just this history of anti-racist progress, where we have been breaking down barriers, where we have uh, 
created situations in which, you know, the first Black woman can be elected and inaugurated as the, as the, as the Vice President of the United States. But we've also experienced as a nation racist progress, where barriers, where exclusion, where discrimination, where policies have become more sophisticated over time. And typically those new and more sophisticated policies are relevant to the times. And so like last year, when those who wanted to suppress votes realized the way to do so was to make it harder for people to send mail-in votes, that became a new way sort of to suppress votes, particularly of you know, black and brown voters. And, and I think we have to, to own that. And I think now, particularly on January 6th, people saw racist progress sort of on display. Mm-hmm. That phrase, the new and more sophisticated kind of barriers, um, the building of those barriers, brings to mind a kind of dance of death between something like a virus and an antibody, you know, that they're cannily adapting in various ways. And you're right, the insidious effort to sabotage the post office, the po- the USPS that we hadn't seen before, it just, it beggared belief as it was happening. But it also, it also seems like a very, um, and you may not like this metaphor set, and please tell me if, if so, why you don't. But it seems like a very, like, it really does seem like a battle for survival with one group of white supremacists, of racists concocting. And by the way, I, it, just because we're on you know, the the big topics today. I think it, racial progress is a is a very good proxy for progress generally for what we mean by progress. Yes, so that, yeah. so when I talk about white, white supremacy, we might as well be talking about patriarchy or or yeah. uh, you know runaway capitalism. But in any case, on the race subject, that white supremacists become more wily, um, find better ways to create sophisticated barriers, while um, anti-racists and those kind of hurt by race racism, find better ways to thrive. Mm-hmm. That battle is just extremely interesting. Because I, I want to talk about your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which you hadn't published when you talked to Jamel, and has been one of the signature books of our time. Just one small note is, you know, when you said, well, racism might be ascendant, basically, when it's in the White House, but so is anti-racism. One good example of that is that in Obama's last year as president, the bestseller list was dominated by books by Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, and Newt Gingrich. And in the last year of Trump's presidency, there it's dominated by books largely about race and racism, about the new Jim Crow, about white fragility, and your book. And it's been somewhat astounding. It's exactly the point you make, that the, the radicalism if that's the right word, has happened in tandem with this reactionary politics that has been on center stage. And, and I think you're right in that, you know, white supremacy or racism can be can serve as a stand-in for patriarchy or ableism and, and other forms of bigotry or oppression. And ultimately, what, what's happening and what's happened over the course of, of American history and what we've definitely seen over the last year is this clash between really the forces of, of justice and injustice. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me, I just don't think it is accurate to make this case that America is inherently and historically has been this just nation or that America is inherently 
or has historically been this unjust nation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been both. But more importantly, it's been a clash of, you know, feminism and patriarchy, of racism and anti-racism, you know, of, of those who are advocating for an economy that serves everyday people and those who are advocating for a comedy that serves the super rich. And to not share the tale of both sides, but more importantly, the clash is to really leave out um, the driving force of history and even the driving force of our time. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. The question I've said this to listeners so many times that I have is, and I still think it's an open question, I'm not sure if the arc of history bends toward justice. I'm not sure I have a teleological idea of history where, you know, we know where it's all going. But it seems to bend toward survival. I mean, just as a tautology, right? Like, you know, what will be here in 10 years will be the thing that survives. And what I've wondered all through this, especially in the times where it seems like Man, the Trump and Trump and Trumpites are sowing the fields with salt. Like nothing will grow here again. You know, they'll they'll block justice at every turn. No one will ever get a hearing. Um, George Floyd will be killed over and over and over again. It doesn't stop. It's never stopping. And then you see things like the fact that he was a one-term president, the fact that he's impeached twice, the fact that he has all kinds of outstanding uh, uh, criminal proceedings that could be brought against him, the fact that he'll never get a loan again and that his loan might be called in and that he's been driven to Florida and that he's been written out of history because he didn't show up at the inauguration today. So there may be ways that it's the anti-racist forces, the forces of justice that are in fact adaptive Forget if they're righteous. Like, forget for a second if we even have a dog in this fight. Like, who's it'll it'll be the one that wins that 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 is adaptive to the human to the human race. And we have you know all kinds of you know Charles Murrays of the world that will tell you that science believes that white racist thinking will win out, and we've listened to them a lot. But it seems to me that the mechanisms that you describe of racism, and again, as a proxy for other kinds of systemic injustice, but racism, the erecting of barriers is a weaker gesture than the will to survive and thrive and acquire resources and equity. I think it is. And and I think that in order to have the power to erect barriers and to sort of harm people, you have to convince those people that those barriers are actually a form of freedom (laughs) and Mm. that those barriers are helping them or are keeping them from the people who are truly hurting them. When indeed those people who who they are led to believe are hurting them are actually their natural allies. So you literally have to constantly create a world of make-believe that Donald Trump created and fundamentally, I just don't believe, I believe that lies and misinformation are more easily believed, but they're also more easily demonstrated to be not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and so then what happens is once we're able to show people the lies or, or once that runaway train of misinformation or brutality or terror sort of eventually runs you over, then people start realizing that this was actually bad for them. And and then those very same people begin to be part of this larger movement for justice. And I do think, I agree with you that over the course of human history, 
you know, people are inclined to survive. And, and once they realize that an issue like bigotry is an existential threat to human existence, mm-hmm. <laughs> as mm-hmm. it truly is, and we should see, like climate change, like nuclear war, and we saw that through the Trump administration, people are like, okay, you know what, I need to fight against it so I can survive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of Eugene Goodman as this kind of fascinating figure who acted, as we all know, as a decoy to distract the insurrectionists, the, the, the terrorists at the Capitol from the Congress people that he was sworn to protect. And he did so by leveraging white supremacy and, and virulent murderous racism against murderous racists using their own, it was like a jujitsu move. You know, and 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 what a kind of extraordinary way to wrap up this incredibly dangerous time in American history to know that their racism would lead them off the ledge, would lead them away from their goals, would be for them counteradaptive, ultimately, that their eyes would be so flooded with the desire to take down one more black man that they wouldn't be able to complete the insurrection that they were hell bent on. I mean, I just I think that is astounding. And obviously, Eugene Goodman is a hero and also incredibly tragic, but canny that he was able to divine that. I actually think that's a metaphor for Trump's presidency, you know, in that that's precisely what happened. I mean, he ran himself off the cliff. Yes. Um, And certainly through his handling of the coronavirus pandemic and and certainly through his um sort of stoking this lie, which then led to this to this catastrophic moment that likely destroyed his political future. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing even with the Confederate States of America, that mm-hmm. they decided to do the extreme um, thing and, 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 and succeed from the Union, which ultimately led to, to, to the demise of slavery itself. It has been um, a coming into consciousness for so many of us around so many different kinds of tyranny. Um, You know, I think I've said this before that, uh, you know, I think there was no harder core a Hillary supporter than I am, not since the Red Sox uh, in in 1986. (laughs) Have I, like, identified way too much with a participant in a national contest and Mm -hmm. thus got my heart broken, you know? And I literally thought, you know, if I touched her hair, like that kid with Obama would feel like my also bleached hair, you know? And I I was like, she's too much like me. And, and, and when she lost, it took a long time to get over that. You know, she could be my older sister. She could be my mother. It took a long time to get over that. But when I did, I was able to start looking around and saying, she's not, she is not the woman man for this moment. You know, she actually, I I can open my heart to someone like AOC, whose politics are different and whose background is different and start to see, uh, you know, start to see other Jamie Harrison, the the, like uh, Kamala Harris, of course, that the future might not belong to people who look like me. And, it's embarrassing to admit, but I thought the progress was going to be another white person who looks, but this time a woman, you know, I could only move that far outside the cycle of, you know, the world I was a little bit locked in. And of course, our great half Irish president, Barack Obama, I had no trouble identifying with him. But I think we've all moved, 
you know, to the left so much that you hear Joe Biden talk about systemic racism. I mean, it sounds like the critical legal scholars that I studied with who were reviled in the 90s, you know, and like, how does Joe Biden, you know, Mr. Crime Bill suddenly talk about the or be is sensitive to the finer points of systemic racism, just this, this huge move in sounds a little age of Aquarius, but in consciousness that has happened over the last four years in tandem with the very public racism I mean, is that your experience? Because I know you describe moving from a period of kind of racism yourself to a greater consciousness of anti-racism. Certainly, I think it's important for us to recognize the ways in which Black Lives Matter activists, um, anti-racist scholars, uh, all different types of folks uh, since the 90s have, have really moved this country to a greater awareness of the problem of systemic racism. And because in the 90s, there was this common belief among Democrats, let alone Republicans, that racism did exist, but Black folks also needed to take personal responsibility or stop using the race card. And so now I think we've gotten to a place where even some of those folks saying that then are now recognizing that the root issue you know, is racism. And that's that's the result of a tremendous amount of organizing, uh, narrative shift, scholarship, you know, demonstrations that have happened, particularly over the last 10 years, even more so the last sort of seven years, that I think we should acknowledge and, and, and recognize. It's, it's similar to some of the shifts that were seen in the, in the 60s or some of the shifts that happened in the 1850s and 1860s. Mm. Mm -hmm. But the key is we need to implement policy change. Otherwise, then this is all for naught. Yeah. I mean, the same as, you know, the people tracking, you know, what kind of change Me Too made in the world and how much some of the men implicated in offenses, violence, all the way up to rape got their positions back. Or the discourse just that, you know, the caravan moved on and left for dead some of the women who had complained or women who had been hurt. And there certainly is a fear about Black Lives Matter like that, that it seized uh, Black Lives Matter over the summer, that that particular version of the uprising was so compelling. And all of a sudden, every brand, you know, was emphasizing their anti-racist moves and doing hand-wringing, but that that might not get in place, especially if Biden papers over everything, you know, glad handing with Mitch McConnell, kind of forgiving everything in the name of unity. That would be bad and unsettling. Is that what you see in Biden? Is that your fear with Biden? So the beauty is that now that Biden, President, uh, you know, Biden um, is in office, we are going to sit back and see what he does. To me, the way to bring about unity mm -hmm. is through creating equity and, and justice for all. Yeah, That's a better path to unity than, than let's say, not holding certain people accountable. Because what's going to happen is if, if the path to unity is not holding group A accountable, but continuing to hold group B accountable, mm -hmm. Group A is going to be like, oh, I like your unity, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. certainly Group B will not. And Group B has often been Black folks. 
I want to go back to your own development that led you from that last conversation on Trumpcast to the publication and just to the beneficiary of the enormous success of how to be an anti-racist. Because it seems like some sharpening of your positions and also um, broadening. I mean, there's just that book is the is really the flowering of um, of the thinking that that I heard you doing uh, in in 2017. And, you know, what emboldened you to publish it? And and were you surprised at the reception? And also, what happened? What happened to you during the Trump administration, I guess? What happened to your intellectual life, your activist life? I think what, what caused me to write How to Be an Anti-Racist is everyday people pretty much asked me to write the book. Um, <laughs> after writing Stamp from the Beginning, which was a history of racist and anti-racist ideas and, and going around encouraging people to, to, to express anti-racist ideas, to be anti-racist, folks were like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean anti-racist? You know, how can I be, be anti-racist? And I heard that question over and over again, hmm. which, which caused me ultimately to, to write how to be an anti-racist. And I knew in writing how to be an anti-racist that Racism is so intertwined with other forms of, of bigotry that there's just no way to separate it out. And too often we have we have separated out racism from sexism, from from classism, from homophobia, and and that's just not how people experience it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, a queer Latinx woman experiences. Uh, racism and homophobia and even sexism at its intersection. And and mm. and so we have to talk about it in that way, which is why, you know, I decided to write about it in that way. But I also wanted to get people to think about how we should be, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, asking themselves, giving people a di- you know, direction of the type of person they can be in this world that could create an equitable and just society. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's such a practical manual. It's really amazing. And I think one example of intersectionality in an unexpected place is Amanda Gorman, the 23-year-old poet who recited her poem, The Hill We Climb Today at the inauguration. She suffered with stuttering as a child and likened herself to Maya Angelou, who was quiet or silent almost for five years following trauma. And part of her connection with Biden is this this stutter, the sort of anti-ableist kind of thinking. And just what an, what an amazing way to think about anti-racism and its proxies, that it could bring together Amanda Gorman and Joe Biden on this very profound question about the abilities of their bodies. And that, I thought, really made intersectionality, not not at all a buzzword, but a kind of a better name for our common humanity. I wonder if her poem, or if anything in the inauguration today, gave you pause or gave you hope? I mean, obviously, I think many, many people have spoken highly and showered her with praise for just an incredibly powerful poem. I've also seen that Former First Lady Michelle Obama was was decked out in a nice uh, fit, and and so was the new First Lady Joe Biden had a had an incredible blue jacket, and so I, I think folks were folks were dressing today. Yeah, but I think you know I I was not able to hear uh, all of Biden's uh, President Biden's speech, um, mm-hmm. but I did hear 
him at one point mentioned that, you know, for 400 years, the dream, you know, of African-Americans have, have been deferred. And he did mention that apparently that, you know, that needs to end. Mm-hmm. And so I'm encouraged and I'm certainly going to be, you know, pushing for that to be. Dr. Kendi, I got to hear you say words that we've never been able to say on this show before. That is President Biden. (laughs) You said it rolled off the tongue. So those are the facts at the end of the day today. And I'm so grateful for all your work and for getting to talk to you again on this show. Thanks again, Dr. Kendi. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a professor at Boston University and director of the Anti-Racism Center. For his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he won the National Book Award and hit the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's it for today's show. Next week, we're going to have the very last episode of Trumpcast with a surprise guest. In the meantime, find us on Twitter to celebrate, to say goodbye, and to talk about the future. I'm at page 88, and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And before you go, sign up for Slate Plus. It means more now than ever. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by the fabulous Melissa Kaplan and engineered by the equally fabulous Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hello, my fellow Americans, especially the ones who were at the Capitol. You did a great job. Great job. Believe me. No violence. Now, a number of prominent Republicans have told me that I have to give a concession speech. I don't I don't know what a concession speech is. I mean, the only concessions I like are the ones at the stadium. They're my favorite concessions because, you know, you can get a hot dog and something like that. You know, you got to have a lot of napkins, though, because of the mustard. You can get yourself a Diet Coke, which everyone knows I drink, some popcorn. But you have to be careful with the popcorn because it gets stuck in your it's stuck in your teeth, you know? You just, it, like, these little shells get in there, and it's, uh, what's it, Kelly? Kelly, what's that called? What, a husk? It's a husk. It gets in there. It's terrible. It's bad for your teeth. It's bad for your teeth. Those things are murder. This will be a non-concession speech. It's the opposite of a concession speech because I'm not conceded. So why should I concede? I'm going to continue to fight even after the inauguration I myself will not be fighting. I'll be on the golf course, you know, because I can't fight because of my bone spurs. But my attorneys will be fighting. Now, the definition of a conspiracy, I looked it up on the Google, is an agreement between two or more persons to engage jointly in an unlawful criminal act or an act that is innocent in itself, but becomes unlawful when done in combination. That means every single person who voted for Joe Biden is in on the conspiracy. And I will be suing every single one of them because this is the biggest ever lawsuit because this is the biggest ever conspiracy.